It's good to have everybody here today. Hope you all have been having a good week. And uh, hopefully everybody's been staying safe. But today we're continuing in Isaiah. And this is session two. And this is about Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite passages. And a lot of worship leaders use this as the model for worship services. How to do a worship service, how to plan a worship, how worship should be structured. So this is sometimes called the worship chapter. But this is really Isaiah's call to the ministry. And this is what's different a little bit about Isaiah because in most of the other prophetic books, the prophet's call to the ministry is listed in chapter 1. Like in the year of King whatever, uh, so and so was called to the ministry. And uh, he heard the voice of God speaking to him. This usually happens in the first verse or first chapter. But in chapter, or rather in Isaiah, it doesn't come until chapter 6. And if you go through the first five chapters, you read God condemning Israel and laying out their crimes and then laying out their path to restoration and basically telling them what's going to happen. And so that's where we are now in chapter 6. We begin with Isaiah telling about his call to the ministry when God reached out to him and said, Isaiah, I need you. And so we're going to get into this, but um, if you read through chapter 5, just a little bit of a lead into this, if you read through chapter 5, Isaiah gives an example of a vineyard. And... Of course, in this example, the symbolism, God is the one who owns the vineyard, and Israel is the fruit of the vine. And the chapter in in 5 talks about how the vineyard person, vineyarder, I don't know what you call somebody who plants a vineyard. Anyway, they had planted the vine in the right place, the right time, with the right seeds. They had done everything right. And the vineyard, I wish I knew the word for that. I know there's a word for that, but anyway. The person who planted the vineyard, that's a lot to say. The person who planted the vineyard went out to the vines and he found that all the fruit was bad. And he said, well, it's not my fault because I did everything the right way. So it's the fault of the fruit for not being good fruit. And in this example, God was the planter. And Israel was the fruit of the vine. And God, being sovereign and holy, had done everything the right way on his side of the covenant. And when he went out to pick the fruit from his vine, Israel had nothing but bad fruit. And so this is the condemnation of Israel. This is the symbolism of what Israel has done to get on God's bad side. And it's not God's fault. We know that's not God's fault. He did it all right because he's perfect. And so he is saying, you have been found wanting. You have produced bad fruit. And you're about to get cut down and thrown into the fire. And so this is what leads in. So if you read through chapter 5, you see that. And this is what leads into um, Isaiah's call to the ministry. Um, So let's begin in chapter 6. Verse 1, there's a lot in here, and I'll try not to get off on too many tangents, uh, but there's just so much in Isaiah chapter 6. It's just so full of interesting information. But this is what he says in the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. 
So in his vision, in his dream, Isaiah looks up and he sees God. And the majesty, the awe, the power, the glory of God filled the temple. And we know that it happened in around 740 B.C. because that's about when King Uzziah died. Now a little background on King Uzziah. He was a good king. He was very young when he became king. And he tried to do everything that was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he, he followed God for most of his reign. But then, at the end of his reign, King Uzziah tried to usurp the power of the priesthood. He wanted to be both king and priest. And so what did God do? Do you all know the story about Uzziah and what God did to him? He got leprosy. He was struck with leprosy. So after all the good that Uzziah had done and all the hope that he had brought to Israel, he messed up. Which shows that humans, no matter how often they try so hard to be good, we always fall. We always sin. It's an example of the sinful world we live in. That no matter how often we try, we might have the best of intentions, but at some point we're going to mess up. And that's just what Uzziah did. He was a good king for most of his life. But then at the end, he messed up. And God struck him with leprosy. And so he gave the throne to his son, Joram. And there was so much, as usually happens with a changeover in in a ruler, there was a a lot of unrest, a lot of uncertainty. A lot of problems in Israel. And so this is the background for when Isaiah has his vision. And also you have to understand that Isaiah would have been sad about Uzziah dying. Because again, Uzziah was a good king. And Isaiah loved Uzziah and said he's a good king. He's leading the people right. And when he died, he was sad because... That was the hope of Israel, basically. That was, he had led Israel so well, and when he died, Isaiah was in a state of sadness. He was in a state of, of uh, depression. And so this is the, the background that we get to, and he sees God, and this means this to us. To us today, this means that we don't put our trust in kings. We don't put our trust in rulers. Uzziah was a good king, but he failed at the end. But when Isaiah sees God, that is God reminding him, guess what? I'm still on my throne. A lot of problems in Israel. We're all sad about losing a good king, but I'm still on the throne. And he was saying to Isaiah, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that's controlling it. I'm the one that's directing things. I'm the one that's going to make things work. I'm the one that's going to restore Israel to its former glory. Don't worry about Uzziah. Don't worry about the state of the nation at the time. Don't worry about all the problems because I am still God. And I am still on the throne. And that's a message to us today. So many problems in our country and in our world. So much darkness. So much evil. And we see things that are just... You can't call it anything but evil. And we get despair. We get depressed, we, we get sad, we think, this is just bad. And how is it going to get better? 
But we need to remember that when Isaiah was at his lowest point, God revealed himself and said, I am still God. I am still on the throne. And so that's the hope and that's the message to us. So the first thing is he sees God. He, God reveals himself to Isaiah. And then in chapter 2 we read this. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. Now there's been discussion by scholars about the seraphim. Um, the word that they use is often used to describe a burning, a being who burns, a being who uh, is radiant. So some, some think that the, the seraphim might have been fire beings, you know, made of fire, or they might simply have been shining so brightly that they were radiant. So they're sometimes called the burning ones. But the main thing is that they were attending God. They were attending God. They were there to serve God. And the, the wings are symbolic. They covered their faces because they weren't worthy to look on God. That's a symbol that they were not worthy to see God. They covered their feet to show humility. So they covered their feet to say we are not worthy to be in God's presence. Just like when Moses came to the burning bush and God said take off your shoes. You're not worthy because you're standing on holy ground. And it's a symbol. It's just to remind us that God is holy. And when we stand in God's presence, we are in the presence of the Most High God, who is holy and perfect and awesome, and we should never take it lightly. We should never take it as a joke or just casually. When we stand in the presence of the Most High God, we're on holy ground. And so the seraphim covered their feet. And then with two wings they flew, and some think that that symbolized that they were ready to do God's will. They were ready to act. They were ready to go out and spread His word. But the seraphim were there to, to uh, attend to God. And they also were there to praise God. In verses 3 and 4 they do this. They said, One call to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. So the first thing we see is the seraphim, they're, they're praising God. And they say, holy, holy, holy. And that's the point of emphasis. They want to make sure you understand God is holy. Is the Lord of armies. And His glory fills the whole earth. And I think that was God's way of reminding Isaiah that He was, not only did He have a heavenly army, but He was in control of all the armies of the earth. Even if they didn't acknowledge him as God, he still controlled all the armies of the world. So basically there's nothing that happens without God knowing it or directing it. He is in control. And then it said his glory covered the earth. Some scholars think that you could word this in a way that it shows that the earth reflects the glory of God. I like to, I like to go up to the mountains. Y'all might like the mountains too. I love going to the mountains, standing on the mountaintop and just looking out, seeing the beauty of God's creation. It reminds me, God made this. It's pretty awesome. He's a better artist than I could ever be. Uh, and so I love to go up into the mountains and see the beauty of God's creation. One thing I'd like to do before I die, if I ever get the chance, is I want to go to either Austria or Switzerland and see the Alps. The most beautiful mountains on earth. 
I'd love to see the Alps. Maybe I'd dance in the field like Julie Andrews did in Sound of Music and the hills are alive. Uh, but anyway, I want to go see the Alps because they reflect the majesty of God. I don't look at it and say, oh, wow, that's pretty. Isn't our earth pretty? I look at that and I say, wow, God created this. He's pretty awesome. And so that's what that verse means. The glory of God is reflected in His creation. When we look at God's creation, we see the glory, the majesty, the power of God. And their voices were so powerful that they actually shook the doorways. And then the last part says the temple was filled with smoke. And this is a reference to the, uh, the, the urns, the big pots that held the coals for incense that they burned at the entrance to the temple. And so this is a reference to the burning of incense at the temple, which is a sign of the sacrifice to God, a sign of obedience to God. So that's not just, oh, somebody set a fire in here. It's representative of the obedience to God that was being done at the temple, the smoke, the incense that was being burned to honor God. So that's what it means when it says smoke filled the temple. Now this is Isaiah's reaction, and this is where it gets very interesting. So Isaiah has seen God. His majesty fills the temple. These angels, these seraphim, they're shouting in these loud voices, holy, holy, holy is God. And what does Isaiah do? The first thing he does when he realizes I'm standing in the presence of the Most High God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. When Isaiah stood in the presence of the Most High God, he trembled and he realized that he was a sinful man. The holiness of God reveals our unworthiness. It reveals our sinfulness. When we stand in the purifying light of God and Jesus Christ, our sin is revealed. And this is exactly what Isaiah did. And he's not the only one. There's many instances throughout the Bible where an angel appears to a human and the human realizes they're in the presence of God and they think, I'm going to die. Because if you saw the face of God, you would die. Remember when Moses came out of the tabernacle, his face was shining, reflecting the glory of God, and the people were afraid. They said, Moses, cover your face. We can't look at you because you've been in God's presence. And if we look at you too long, we could die. It's the, it's the purifying light of the holiness of God, the purity of Jesus Christ, that reflects our sin. And Isaiah realized that. And to us, for us today, we have to do the same thing. When we come into the presence of the Most High God, we need to realize that we are there only at His mercy. We are not there because we deserve to be in God's presence. We are not there because we have worked hard to earn His favor. We are there simply because of His mercy and His love for us. And that should... engender in us a sense of gratitude a sense of awe a sense of being in the presence of the most high God and that's why I never take worship lightly when I come into worship I know that I'm in the presence of the most high God 
And when I lead worship, I don't think we're just there to have fun. I don't think we're just there to be entertained. I don't think we're just there because we've got nothing else to do. We are there, when we worship, we are in the presence of the Most High God. And we are in the, in the presence of the Holy One who created all that is. And we are there to worship Him. And worship Him alone. That's the only reason we're there. We're not there to get something out of the worship time. Although we should. We're not there because of what worship does for us. We're there because of what we do for God. And that's something that I think a lot of churches these days have forgotten. People go to worship and they say, well, I didn't really get anything out of it, so I'm going to go try somebody else. I didn't really like those songs, or I didn't like that sermon, or I didn't like that scripture, or I didn't like that video, or I didn't like that whatever. So I think I'm going to go somewhere else. And they have this mentality that I am here, you'd better entertain me or I'm going to go somewhere else. And that is the wrong way to look at worship. That is an absolutely wrong way to look at worship. And if that's how you look at worship, then you're not there for the right reason. You should just stay home. Because you're not doing yourself any favors. When we come to worship, we are there to worship God. We are there for Him. He grants us blessings, yes. He grants us His Word, yes. But we are not there to be entertained. And so, too many times, and I think, that's, I think that's being reflected in our churches today, that we're not reaching people because we're not taking worship seriously. We don't take worship the right way. And I think that's why we're not reaching the world. Because the world says, well, if all you're going to do is entertain me, I can stay home and watch TV. Worship is not about entertainment. It's about what we do for God. That's it. Full stop. End of story. So that's what Isaiah did. He said, I am here in the presence of God and I'm going to die because I have seen His face. And then this is how God responds. In verse 6 and 7 he says this, and this is very, very interesting to me. One of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that, now that this has touched your lips... Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So, let me hear your thoughts on this. Why did he do the coal? What was the purpose? What was the symbolism of the coal? Any thoughts? Well, burning our fire purifies. Yep. And where did it come from? It came from the altar. It came from the altar. And so, this is what I find interesting. God could have said, you know, okay, your sins are forgiven. He's God. He could just say it and it'd be true. But he used the symbol of the coal to show that that was a purifying fire that came from God. It was on God's altar. It was incense devoted to Him. And it was, it was blessed, it was sacred, and it touched his lips, because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, so it touched his lips to show that he was clean. And it showed that only God has the power to forgive sins. Man cannot forgive sins. 
We can go around all day saying your sins are forgiven. It's not our part. That's not our job. We don't say, hey, you want to come to church? I'll forgive your sins. (laughs) No, we don't say that. We say come to church and God will forgive your sins. And so this was a symbol. He He didn't have to use the coal. He didn't have to have the tongs and the angel and all that. He could have just said your sins are forgiven. Jesus did it. Jesus said your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. But he used the coal to symbolize that only God can forgive sin. And this was sacred, holy, and came from God. And it touched his lips to show that I have heard your plea that you are a man of unclean lips. And I have forgiven your iniquity by touching this to your lips. And so this was a symbol of God forgiving sin. And it is also a precursor. It is also a foretelling of Jesus Christ. Because this was the first, or not the first, but this is one of the early mentions of sin being forgiven. And it was pointing to Jesus. Eventually Jesus would be the final forgiver of sins. He would be the final sacrifice for all of us. So this is a little picture of what Jesus will do for us when he comes later on. And so it's very interesting to me. It's always been fascinating to me that he used the symbolism not only to show that only God can forgive sins, but also to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. The only one that would be the final forgiver of sins. Yeah, especially at the end of the verse 7. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He used the words, your sin is atoned for. Now, in that symbol, it was the coal taken from the altar that was the symbol of atonement. But when Jesus came, he was the final atoner. He was the one who atoned for all our sins forever and ever. No more sacrifices. No more coal. Jesus was the one that would be the final atonement for our sin. And that was a neat little picture of what Jesus would do for us. In verse 8, now, so Isaiah has seen God. He's realized his sinfulness. And he's been forgiven. And this is another interesting point. Now that Isaiah's sins have been forgiven by God, he can do the work that God is going to call him to. He can speak for God, right? Because before he couldn't speak for God because he was a sinful man. And so that showed another symbolism. There's something else I wanted to talk about. Another symbol is that that showed that God forgave his sins to prepare him for the ministry that he was about to call him to. Now Isaiah can say, I speak for God. You're not looking at Isaiah as sinful man. You're looking at the word of God that has come through me through the forgiveness of my sins. My sins are forgiven, not by me. I didn't earn that forgiveness. God gave me that forgiveness in preparation to serve him. If God had not forgiven his sins, Isaiah couldn't perform his ministry. He couldn't say, I'm speaking for God because God couldn't use him as long as he was still a sinner. As long as he was still lost in his sin. So that's another picture for us of Jesus Christ. When we become saved, when we repent of our sin, then God can use us. Then God uses us to do the ministry that he has called us to do. Until we receive that repentance, 
we can't do the ministry. A lot of people think that all you have to do, and I've seen a lot of ministers do this, all you have to do to go to be a minister is simply to go to school and get an education. You get that little piece of paper from seminary, or you get that little piece of paper from a, from a Christian college that says you're a minister of God. Go forth. Minister. doesn't work that way. The first thing you have to do is you have to have true repentance. You have to be forgiven of your sins. And without that, you can't minister for God. You cannot speak for God. And so that's a symbol that Isaiah is now speaking for God. He is no longer Isaiah the man. He is now Isaiah the, the one who speaks for God. He is the prophet of God. And this is what God had him do. So God now speaks. This is the first time we've heard the voice of God. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. In the military, one of the first things they tell you is never volunteer. Never volunteer, because that just gets you in trouble. But look at the eagerness, look at the willingness that Isaiah had. As soon as God said it, somebody has to go tell the world about me. Somebody has to go tell Israel about me. Somebody has to share my word with Israel. Who will do it? Isaiah, unhesitatingly, unflinchingly, without any moment doubt, he said, okay, I'll do it. Here I am. That is the proper response. Compare that with Moses. Moses was a wonderful prophet of God. He did great things in God's name, used by God. But you remember how the conversation at the bush went? Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. No, I can't do that. Moses, I want you to speak for me. Well, I got this stutter. Moses, I want you to do miracles for me. Well, they want to kill me in Egypt. And Moses just kept coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse. And finally he gave in and God said, do it. And he said, okay. But contrast that with Isaiah. The first thing he says is, I'll do it. I will do it. And that is the proper response. But it also shows that God can use anyone. Jonah. Jonah ran far away to get get away from his ministry. That's right. I'm going the other way. So God will use anyone as long as they are willing. Sometimes you need to kick in the backside to get willing, like Jonah did. But you'll eventually be willing. And God will use you as long as you are willing. All you have to say is, here am I, send me. Whether you say it at the very beginning or you say it after three days in the belly of a whale. Doesn't matter. As long as you say, here am I, send me, God will use you. And so that was the, that was the proclamation from God saying, who will go? And then the dedication from Isaiah saying, I will do it. I am ready to go. But look at what God replies. Now this is the commission that he's going to give to God. Or to give to Isaiah. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? God is a God of forgiveness and mercy, and yet now he's saying, You know what? Tell the Israelites to shut their ears. 
tell the Israelites, don't listen. I don't want you to understand. I don't want you to get better. I don't want you to do anything. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. Why do you think he said that? What, what do you think this tells us about God and, and Israel? Any thoughts? Because this is very this interesting. Not be anywhere where you're heading, but uh, I was just in reading it, thinking uh, that uh, it's like if if they hear and they they interpret things under their own understanding and go out and do in their own strength. He doesn't want that to happen. He wants them to hear from him. That could be. Could be. To me, it's just saying that um, he knows they're not going to understand. He knows their hearts that they're not going to turn. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows. Yeah. You know, I agree with God's that. all knowing, so. He's going to send Isaiah, but he knows that they're going to keep on doing what they're doing. So. Mm-hmm. Louise, were you going to say that? That's it. Too many chances. And I think that's exactly right. One, I think God knew how Israel was going to respond. Remember when Moses went to the Pharaoh, and the Bible tells us very clearly that God hardened his heart. It almost seems like Pharaoh didn't have a choice. Like he, he had no choice in being the bad guy. Which I don't believe. I don't think that's what it means. I think what might have been a better interpretation of it, what it might mean to us, is that God didn't try to change his heart. Because he knew Pharaoh had already hardened his heart. And was not going to change. And he said, if this is how you feel, I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, same thing with Judas. I think Judas had a chance to, to stop. Because when at the Last Supper, the disciples asked Jesus, who's going to betray you? And he said, the one who takes this cup from my hand. And he handed it to Judas. He was telling Judas, I know what you're going to do. You have a chance right now to stop. But I know you're not going to. But I want you to know that I know. And I think that's what he was telling Isaiah. I know... You're going to go to the Israelites and tell them all the bad stuff that's going to happen. And they're not going to listen. I know that you're going to try to get them to repent and they're going to refuse. So I'm just preparing you, Isaiah. I'm just getting you ready for this disappointment. This is not like Jonah who went to the Ninevites and they repented. And I spared their city. The Israelites, they have made their choice. And like Louise said, they were out of choice, or they were out of chances. That was their last chance. And God said, I'm not going to try to save them now. Their doom is coming. Their judgment is coming. But you're going to know that it's coming from God. It's not the Babylonians. It's not the Assyrians. It's God that has judged you and has brought the punishment upon you. I'm just telling you this because I want you to know. It's not because you're going to change and I'm going to save your city. It's because you're going to go through this punishment. And I want you to know why you're going through this punishment. And so that's why God says this. To tell the Israelites, don't worry about understanding. Don't worry about changing. Don't worry about realizing what's happening. It's not going to happen. So just know that the punishment is coming. And it's me that's doing it. It's not coming from anybody else. And this is why you're being punished. And so this is kind of depressing for Isaiah. He's like, well, 
I'm going to go to the people and I'm going to preach this depressing message. This is not fun because one, he didn't want to be, you know, the Debbie Downer. He didn't want to be the one that everybody said, oh, he's just got a sad message. And also because he loved the Israelites. They were his people. And he wanted them to repent. But here's God saying, no, they're not going to repent. And so then Isaiah says in verse 11, 13, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. So again, this is not a pleasant message. Isaiah says, God, well, how long are they going to have to endure this? He says, until everybody's wiped out. So all the houses are blown down. To all the temples are destroyed. To all the palaces are knocked down. The land is lying in smoldering ruins. And there's nobody left. And so that's, that's got to be really tough for Isaiah because he was hoping he'd get to bring a message of hope. If you repent, God will stop this from happening. But like we talked about, they had their chance. And it's over now. And that, I think, also is a lesson that sometimes if you keep doing what you're doing and you keep refusing God's call to repentance, at some point he says, that's it then. No more. Your judgment will come and you can't stop it. And I think that judgment is for the nation, but Mm -hmm. still there would be individuals who would follow God. And that could be the same way for us. No matter how far from God your nation gets, you're an individual and you're not going to be judged by your nation. You're going to be judged by what you do. Right. Even though God may destroy that nation, you you still have individuals who follow God. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and they did too. And so that is telling the Israelites that your land is going to be laid waste. And in the ancient world, people were tied to the land. The land was very important. People didn't pick up, well, they were nomads, but they were a different type. But people like the people of Israel, this was their home. They didn't just pick up and move go somewhere else, put down roots and everything was okay. The people were tied to their land. That's why it was such a crushing blow for the Israelites when they were destroyed and taken into captivity. Because they were separated from their land. And that's extremely difficult for the ancient world because again, that's your home. That is your identity. Your identity is tied to the land. That's why Israel fights so hard now for their land. Because they said, this is our ancestral land. We are tied to this land. We don't want to give this up. And so that was a hard judgment to be taken into captivity. But at the very end, God gives a small message of hope. In verse 13, he says, Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. He said, even after everything's waste, guess what? There's going to be 10% of the people left in the land. And even then, then there's going to be another judgment. He said, the 10% that are left, they're going to be burned too. So it's going to be bad upon bad. But at the very end, there's going to be a little portion left. 
And that's going to be the one I use to rebuild the nation. That holy seed will still be there and I will bless that nation and I will make them strong. And so that was the small message of hope out of all the dark message that God had for the people of Israel. You're going to be burned. You're going to be sent into captivity. 10% are going to be left. They're going to be burned too. But after it's all over, there's going to be a small remnant. And I'm going to bless that remnant. I'm going to rebuild with that remnant. So get ready. And that's also a picture of Jesus Christ. That little remnant would lead to the Savior of the world. That remnant, that holy remnant, would lead to Jesus Christ. He is the final seed. He is the final hope. And so that was a picture of Jesus even more so than the coal because Jesus would would be the one that would be the holy seed that came from that stump. And so what we have for us, and, and we ran a little long, but what we have for us today is a reminder, one, God is in control. Two, we are sinners and we need His mercy. And three, we are called to share His Word, even if it's not a pleasing message. Isaiah didn't have a fun message. Nobody was going to hang around Isaiah. Hey, Isaiah, tell us all that fun stuff about being burned again. Tell us all that fun stuff about how we're going to be taken into captivity. I love hearing that story. No. Sometimes the gospel is not a pleasant message for those who don't want to change. But that doesn't mean we change what we say. Because that is the word of God. And it stands the test of time. And so Isaiah didn't have a pleasant message, but he did what he was called to do. And we're going to see that as we go forward. He tells the people of Israel, it's coming. Your judgment is coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. But when it's all said and done, there will be hope when it's all over. And that's the final message. At the end of the day, God provides hope even after judgment. Thank you all for being here today.